Good morning, Harvesticator. Victoria and I miss seeing you all on this Sunday morning. Please read along as we read today's passage, Romans 5, 18-21. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Brad and Victoria. Welcome, church, to our online service. Let me encourage you now to take your Bibles and turn with me to the passage that was just read, Romans chapter 5, as we continue our series now, Holy Redeemed. And as you're turning there, let me just offer up a quick thanks to Pastor Ryan and to our Harvest students for allowing me to record here in the uh, youth house. Let me just say, too, that if, if the spirit of youth ministry comes upon me today as I'm preaching this message, I'm just going to roll with it, okay? And we'll, we'll see what happens. Here's how I want to start this morning. We're going to look at this passage, Romans 5, this great section about our second Adam, Jesus Christ. And I want to start this morning by teaching you this great Greek word, okay? Huperparasuo. Huperparasuo. Go ahead and turn to your neighbor right now and tell them, Huperparasuo. Wherever you are, kids, turn to your parents and say, Huperparasuo. This is a great Greek word. This is a word that's only used twice in the New Testament. And one of the occurrences is in our passage for today at the end of Romans 5. And here's what this word means, okay? Are you ready for it? Here's what it means. It means superabounding or even super increasing. Huper means above or super in Greek. Parasuo means abounding. Not just abounding, but super, super abounding. Paul says this in verse 20 of Romans 5. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace super increased. That's the idea here. Where sin increased, grace hupaparasuo. This word is actually a verb in Greek. So here's the idea of it. Where sin abounded, says Paul, grace super abounded. Where sin increased, grace super increased. And I, I know right now you might be saying, well, give me some of that, Pastor Tony. Give me some of that super abounding grace. I need some of that. Well, here's the good news, church. You ready for this? According to Romans 5, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, and that's a big if for people in this world. I hope it's not a big if for those of you who are watching this right now. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you already have this superabounding grace. That's already part of your life, and that's going to see a culmination, a great consummation in your future when you see Christ face to face. So let's talk about this superabounding grace this morning. What does that mean that we have superabounding grace? I'll give you three answers to that question. What does this mean that we have superabounding grace? Here's what it means, first of all. I would encourage you to write this down wherever you are. God's superabounding grace means that we get Jesus 
instead of Adam. We get Jesus instead of Adam. Paul says in verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now, I probably don't even need to explain this verse to you because all of you have it down from last week, right? We talked about this. But just in case, here's a reminder. Jesus is better than Adam, right? Adam, our forefather, sinned in the Garden of Eden and brought death to all of us. Jesus died for our sins and brings us life. Adam brought suffering. Jesus brings healing. Adam brought original sin and death on us. Jesus brings us righteousness and life. Adam brought disease. Jesus brings a cure. Adam brought disgrace. Jesus brings us grace. What kind of grace again? Superabounding grace. Paul says, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. What was that trespass? What was it? Do you know? Do you remember? By the way here, the, the word that Paul uses is very specific. It's not just sin. It's, it's a trespass. And that English word trespass, it comes from this Latin word, which means to go beyond or to pass beyond. God told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, you can eat from everything in the garden. You can eat from anything in this garden, but you can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't cross that line. Don't transgress that or, or trespass over that. And what did they do? Well, it's, it's not like they sinned unknowingly in the garden. They knew what they were doing. They sinned. And they brought down these consequences upon even us, their, their children, their offspring. It's interesting to me as you look at Genesis 3 that, you know, Paul, as Paul's looking back at Genesis 3, who does he hold responsible for that? Not Eve who sinned first, not Eve who was deceived, but Adam. Adam, hmm, it's almost like Paul's trying to communicate something to us, men who are watching this right now. Adam abdicated his responsibility there to protect his wife. He should have kicked that lousy serpent to the curb and said, get lost, serpent. Instead, he just sat by silently and acquiesced to the will of Satan. And Paul holds him responsible for that. How interesting here. Adam's sin, it, it wasn't, just to be clear, it wasn't unknowing sin. It was a trespass. In Greek here, the word is parapatoma. Parapatoma, it was a violation of moral standards. And original sin, you guys know that term, right, from last week? Original sin, this, this thing that came down on us, that trespass, according to Paul, led to condemnation for all men, i.e. original sin. Now, here's how the typology works, and this is fascinating. Here, this is beautiful. Paul says in verse 14, Adam was a type of the one who was to come. How was he a type, Pastor Tony? What does that mean? Well, look at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Adam's one thing led to condemnation. Jesus's one thing led to justification, led to life. What was Adam's one thing? What was his one thing? 
It was that sin in the garden. What was Christ's one thing? Do you know? What was that one act of righteousness? It's Jesus, Pastor Tony. Yeah, 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 it's Jesus. I know, (laughs) good answer. But what about Jesus? What was that one act of righteousness? It was his death upon the cross. God the Father told Jesus to die for our sins, and he did it. He took our sins upon himself on that cross. He took the pain. He died for us. And by his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah 53 verse 11 alludes to this. In fact, probably Romans 5, this is Paul ruminating on Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied prophesying about the Messiah 700 years before Jesus came. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. On the cross, you might say, Pastor Tony, this COVID-19 stuff is hard. I'm suffering here. My kids are driving me crazy. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Me, me too. This, this whole thing is driving me crazy. Some of the government regulations right now are driving me crazy. But, but I can imagine Jesus right now, in light of what he's done for us at the cross, turning to us and saying, cry me a river. You think you're suffering right now? You know what I went through for you? You know how I suffered for you on the cross? Actually, I don't think Jesus would say that. Jesus is too kind and gracious and loving. We, we would say that if we did what Jesus did. We would hold it over other people. But Jesus, maybe Jesus would say something like this. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. And what I've done is to cover your sins. God's super abounding grace means this. We get Jesus instead of Adam. We get justification and life instead of Adam's trespass that brings death. We get eternity with Jesus absent COVID-19, that's good. Without Jesus, with Adam, we get an eternity that's far worse than anything, including this world right now in COVID-19. That's a a good trade, by the way. I get Jesus instead of Adam. I get eternal life instead of eternal death. I get an eternity with Jesus. And what does Jesus get for me? He gets my sin. That's a good trade. You guys remember that movie, Dances with Wolves? And Kevin Costner, there's a great scene in that movie where he trades his hat with one of the Indians for the Indian's knife. And the Indian, who had become Kevin Costner's friend in the movie, there were only two English words he really knew how to say, and it was good trade. So, so Kevin Costner, he trades his hat for this Indian's knife, and his Indian friend turns to him and he says, good trade. That's a good trait. That's how I feel about this. Jesus died on the cross. He gets my sin. I get his righteousness. Good trade. That's a good trade. I want that. G-R-A-C-E, grace, folks. That's what this is. God's righteousness at Christ's expense. That's superabounding grace. And if you have faith in Christ, you have it. You have it. C.S. Lewis called grace the defining characteristic of Christianity that differentiated Christianity from the other religions of the world. Jerry Bridges 
He said this one, the late Jerry Bridges, just died a few years ago. He said, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. Amen. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. Jerry Bridges, the great speaker and leader with the Navigators, he just passed away a few years ago and he knows all about God's grace right now as he basks in the presence of the Lord. And we will too someday. We will too someday. Write this down as number two in your notes. God's superbounding grace means Jesus instead of Adam. That's good. It also means this, number two, righteousness instead of sinfulness. Righteousness instead of sinfulness. Paul says this in verse 19. Let's follow the argument here. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Paul is almost a poet here with these verses. And, and that doesn't surprise me because Paul is steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. He knows them. And one aspect of Hebrew poetry, the wisdom books of the Old Testament has this thing called parallelism. So not this, but that. It's, this is an instance of what's called antithetical parallelism. So you can feel the parallelism here as Paul's talking. Not this, but that. You don't want this, you want that. One trespass led to condemnation. One act of righteousness leads to justification. By one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. By one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Are you feeling the parallelism, Harvest Decatur? Are you now? If you're, if you're a Hebrew right now, hearing what Paul was saying, you'd be like, ooh, ah, ooh, that's so good. I love it. Good poetry. It's good theology, too. And once again, Adam is contrasting Adam and Jesus. One man's disobedience in verse 19. What's that disobedience? What's he, talk, what's he talking about there? He's talking about Adam's sin in the garden again. And then there's one man's obedience. What's that? What's he talking about there? Well, if you don't know, maybe this will make it clear. Philippians 2 verse 8 says this, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He became obedient to the point of death. Christ's death on the cross was a form of obedience to God the Father. I'll explain that in just a second. But let's talk about this one man's disobedience first. Paul says, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. The were made there in Greek is a past tense verb. Verb, we were made sinners. Before we ever sinned, we are natural born sinners. Even before your child sins for the first time, he or she, he or she has sin inside of his or her heart. That's a part of who we are as human beings. I heard this last week about a book, this book called The New First Three Years of Life. It's a book written by a psychologist named Burton White. It's an older book now, actually, but uh, people still make reference to it. And here's what, Wright, uh, here's what White wrote about children. He said, from 15 to 16 months on, as his self-awareness becomes more substantial, something in his nature we don't fully understand will lead him to deliberately try each of those forbidden activities specifically to see what will be allowed and what won't. 
In other words, he will begin systematically to challenge the authority of the adults he lives with. No, really? Resistance to simple requests become very common at this time. And if there is more than one child around, this can be a low point in the parenting experience. Yeah. And all of God's people said, uh, yeah. If, if you haven't experienced that, that's because you're not a parent. Thank you very much, Dr. White, for telling us what we already know. Nobody has to teach children how to sin. They, they come by it on their own. They're natural born sinners. By the way, you know, there's been a lot of attempts to try to debunk this idea of original sin throughout the years. The French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he put forth this theory that children are born inherently innocent. And it's actually their parents that corrupt them. So if you could just get the parents out of the way, then the kids would stay innocent. Well, that theory was badly mistaken and can be easily proven wrong. Paul knew better and he wrote in Romans chapter 5, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many, all of us, were made sinners. By the way, the church has been teaching this for 2,000 years. The church father, Cyril of Alexandria, he said this. He said, for our nature contracted the disease of sin because of this, the disobedience of one man, that is Adam. And thus many became sinners. This was not because they sinned along with Adam, because they did not then exist, but because they had the same nature as Adam, which fell under the law of sin. But then Cyril says this. Hear the echoes here. Hear the echoes of what Paul writes in Romans 5. He says, Just as human nature acquired the weakness of corruption in Adam because of disobedience, so the same nature was later set free by Christ, who was obedient to God the Father and did not commit sin. Do you see the contrast there between the obedience of Christ and the disobedience of Adam? Remember Philippians 2, verse 8. In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Christ's death on the cross was obedience to God the Father. Christ the Son, the second person of the Trinity, was obedient to God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. That's amazing. Put that in your Trinitarian theological pipe and smoke it. Christ, God, was obedient to God the Father, God. What am I trying to emphasize here? Obedience doesn't imply inferiority. Submission doesn't imply inferiority. If that did, the whole Christian doctrine of the Trinity would fall apart. And why was Christ obedient to the Father? What did that accomplish? Well, look at the verse, look at the end of verse 19. And so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. It made many righteous, G-R-A-C-E, God's righteousness at Christ's expense. That's what we get out of this. You might say, didn't, didn't Paul just say that in verse 18? Why is he saying it again in verse 19? It's parallelism. He's, he's building an argument. Some things bear repeating. Sometimes you've got to say it over and over again. Just for the record, I think we should be talking about grace all the time. I think we should be talking about our salvation all the time. In, in every conversation that you have, you can work in grace. You really can. How's your day going today, Pastor Tony? It's going great. God's grace is so good. God's grace is good, better than I, 
better than I could ever expect or want. How's your day going today, Pastor Tony? Not so good today. Life is hard today. But you know what? God's grace is sufficient for me right now. Someday I'm going to go to the doctor and the doctor's going to say, Tony, you're about to die. You know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say, well, shucks. I've lived a good life. And God's grace is good. And I'm ready to be ushered into the glory that God has prepared for me as a result of his grace. You can work grace into every conversation. Any conversation. And you should. We should. God's super abounding grace. Let's keep going here. Let's turn our attention to verse 20. I want to transition to this part of Paul's argument, which gets kind of technical. So just fair warning here. Let's read this together. Paul says in verse 20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin abounded, grace superabounded. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about how sin increased. And what, what was the law's role in that? This is really important. Um, in redemption history, let's just go back to the Old Testament. In redemption history, God took a man and he appointed this man as his own. And he called a nation to come out of this man, Abraham. The Israelites, that was the nation. And God gave the Israelites the law. And the law was good. Let me be clear about that. The law was good. The law that God gave the Israelites restrained the effects of sin from the fall. But the law also pointed out sinfulness. And, and you might say that's, that's good too. Before the law was given, you know, the world was lawless. And the best example of that was Noah in that time when God brought the flood. Every thought of man at that time was evil. Humanity started to think up new evil ways to disobey God. And, and God had enough and he brought the flood. So God called people out of that world and he called them to be holy and he gave them the law to, to restrain the effects of sin. And it worked. It worked. Sort of. Sort of. I mean, it, it restrained sin, but it also increased sin. It also showed how sinful human beings are. It pointed out to people their shortcomings and their need for atonement. I want you to watch this video right now. This will help you think through this issue. You're most likely familiar with the Ten Commandments in the Bible, stuff we generally take as good advice. Don't murder, don't steal, honor your parents, the list goes on. And those are just the first ten. There are actually a total of 613 commands, all given to ancient Israel, found in the first five books of the Bible, which in Hebrew are called the Torah. Now the word Torah is usually translated in English as the law, because it has all of these laws in it. And as you read through them, you wonder, Am I supposed to obey some of these, all of these? I mean, what's the purpose of the law? Well, that translation is kind of confusing because while the Torah has laws in it, the book itself is fundamentally a story about how God is creating new kinds of people who are fully able to love God and love others. And when Jesus taught about the Torah, he said that he was bringing that story to its fulfillment. So walk me through the story and how it's fulfilled. So the story begins with God creating humanity who rebels. And God chooses Abraham to bless all of the nations through his family. 
who end up in slavery down in Egypt, and so God rescues them. Then at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with Israel, like an agreement. And all of the laws that Moses gives to Israel are the terms of that agreement. They're like a constitution. And so some of the laws, they're about rituals and customs that set Israel apart from the nations. Other laws are about social justice or morality. And by following these, Israel would show the other nations what God is like. Okay, so the rest of the Torah is just the complete list of laws that Moses gives Israel? Mm, No, the rest of the Torah just continues the story. And the 613 commands are only a selection from that original constitution. And even these have been broken up and placed at strategic points within the story. Now pay attention because you'll see a really clear pattern. Moses gives the first laws to Israel. Don't worship other gods, don't make idols. And then right after that, there's a story of Israel breaking those very laws. Yeah, they worship the golden calf. And so Moses gives some more laws. And then you get more stories of rebellion. Some more laws, rebellion again, some more laws, more rebellion. And you start to see the point. Right, no matter how many laws, they're just going to continue to rebel. So at the conclusion of the Torah's story, Moses gives this final speech to Israel as they prepare to go into their new home. And he tells them, you guys, I know that you're not going to follow all of God's laws. You've proven to me that you're incapable. And Moses says the problem is that their hearts are hard and that they're going to need new transformed hearts if they're ever going to truly follow God's law. And he was right. I mean, the story goes on to recount Israel's total failure. They go into the land. They break all the laws. Right. Now, the next section of books in the Jewish tradition are the 15 books of the prophets, and they reflect back on the story. For example, Ezekiel, he said that if Israel was ever going to obey the law, God's spirit would have to transform their hard hearts into soft hearts. And Jeremiah said that's when obedience to God's commands wouldn't feel like a duty, but they would be written deep in their hearts. And Isaiah, he promised a future leader, Israel's Messiah, who will lead all of the people in obedience to the law. Now, in Jewish tradition, all of these books together are called the prophets, even the historical books, because they're continuing the story told from the perspective of the prophets. Okay, so we have the law and the prophets, and they're telling one connected story about God's desire to bless the whole world through a people, Israel, who it turns out needs a new heart. Yes, and Jesus saw himself as continuing that story. So he agreed with the law and the prophets when he taught that it's out of the human heart that come the most ugly parts of human nature. It's like the default setting of our hearts is opposed to God's law. But Jesus also said that he came to solve that problem and in his words, to fulfill the law. So what does he mean there to fulfill the law? Well, first he said that the demand of all of the laws in the Torah could be fulfilled by what he called the great command that we are to love God and to love others. So that seems pretty easy. I mean, we all want to love. Well, we think we want to love. But Jesus showed how love is far more demanding than we realize. So he quotes the law, do not murder. And he says, yes, not killing someone is a very loving thing to do. But then he also says that when you treat someone with disrespect or when you nurse resentment against them, you're also violating God's moral ideal because you're not treating that person with love. And so Jesus said true love ought to extend even to our own enemies. So even though this command seems very simple, Jesus showed how our hearts are not currently equipped to fulfill even this basic command of God to love others. And that's kind of a downer. But where Israel failed, Jesus brought this story to its fulfillment. As Israel's Messiah, he fully loved God and others. And he showed all of the nations what God is truly like. 
He did this through his acts of compassion and mercy and ultimately by loving his enemies even unto death. And after his resurrection, he told his followers that he would send God's Spirit to transform their hearts so that they could follow him and fulfill the purpose of the law, to love God and to love their neighbor. So this fulfills the story of the law and the prophets, or in the words of the Apostle Paul, the one who loves fulfills the law. That's really good, isn't it? That's helpful. Appreciate what those guys are doing at the Bible Project. In his commentary on Romans, Robert Mounts, he writes this. He says, the law was never intended to provide salvation, but to convince people of their need for it. I think that's good. I think that's right. Martin Luther said once, the law works fear and wrath. Grace works hope and mercy. The great evangelist and preacher, Billy Sunday, said, the law tells me how crooked I am. Grace comes along and straightens me out. Amen, Billy Sunday. The enemy of grace, by the way, really isn't law. It's not like grace is the enemy of the law. No, no, no. The law actually helps us to get to grace. The enemy of grace is legalism. It's legalism. In fact, there's no way to study grace without studying legalism. This idea that you can do it on my own. I can figure out salvation on my own. Let me say it this way. If grace is Superman, then legalism is Lex Luthor, okay? If grace is Spider-Man, then legalism is the Green Goblin. Pick your arch nemesis of choice. If grace is the Chicago Bears, then legalism is, I'm going to say it, the Green Bay Packers. It's Legalism distracts from and defies grace. It makes us think to ourselves, we don't need grace, we can figure this out on our own. And behind that legalistic tendency inside the human heart, by the way, I'm going to save myself, I'm going to figure it out. out. There, there's something deep inside of us, it's called pride. And it's that thing that Satan exploited at the very beginning. It's that thing that brought down Satan too. There's an old Scottish proverb that goes like this. Pride and grace dwelt never in one place. That's good. That speaks to my Scottish heart. There's a Hebrew proverb that goes like this. You've probably heard this before. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. There's a reason that Satan, as he was making Adam and Eve fall in Genesis 1, it, it, there's a reason that he used pride. They could be like God. They can do things on their own. They can be separate from God. That's what brought Satan down. C.S. Lewis, he wrote this in Mere Christianity. He says, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison to pride. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. That's what legalism is. It's defiance of grace. It's an extension of human pride. Is the law bad, Pastor Tony? Is it bad? Is it bad? No, the law isn't the problem. Dependence upon law for righteousness is the problem. The rejection of God is the problem. The rejection of Christ is the problem. The law is good. It restrains the effects of sin and does us a great favor. It shows us how sinful we are. It humbles us, which leads us to grace, and we need to be humbled. We need to be humbled. Joseph Hart, he said it this way in his hymn 250 years ago. Come ye sinners, 
poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. Come you weary, heavy laden, bruised and mangled by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. D.L. Moody said once, love D.L. Moody, a man does not get grace till he comes down to the ground, till he sees he needs grace. When a man stoops to the dust and acknowledges that he needs mercy, that is when the Lord will give him grace. Tim Keller says similarly, if you want God's grace, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. But that kind of spiritual humility is hard to muster. We come to God saying, look at me, look at all I've done, or maybe look at all I've suffered. God, however, wants us to look to him. Paul says here in Romans chapter 5 that the law came to increase the trespass. It makes sin abound in our hearts. It, it helps us to understand just how utterly sinful we are. I heard a pastor say this last week that the function of the law was to make little atoms out of all of us. Little atoms. We're just like daddy. We're just like Adam. The law made sinners like us utterly sinful. It made sin increase. It made sin abounding. But don't you worry, Harvest Decatur. This sounds awful, Pastor Tony. Yes, sin increases. Grace increases all the more. That's part of Paul's argument. Hoopa parasuo. But where sin increased as a result of the law, pointing out the sin in our heart, grace super increased. So, look at verse 21. That as sin reigned in death, sin is king right now. Death is king right now. To that you might say sarcastically, well, long live the king. Great. No, 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 no. Listen, death has an expiration date. Sin has an expiration date. It's not going to reign forever. It's coming to an end. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Hallelujah. I love every word in that last sentence. Give me some of this. Grace, reign, righteousness, eternal life, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Every word in that sentence is amazing. I could preach a message on every sentence here, on every word in that sentence. Except maybe through. I don't, that might be a boring sermon, through. I pretty much have preached a sermon on every one of these words. Righteousness, Jesus, Christ, our Lord. But for the last point of this message, let me just draw your attention to two words in that last sentence. Eternal life. In Greek, zoe ionios. Life eternal. In Greek, the adjective comes after the noun. Life eternal. So here's the last point of our message. Eternal life instead of eternal death. God's superabounding grace means Jesus instead of Adam, righteousness instead of sinfulness, eternal life instead of eternal death. Superabounding grace leads to superabounding eternal life. No Jesus, no life. No grace, 
no life. If you play for Team Adam instead of Team Jesus, you get sin, condemnation, and eternal death. You don't want to play for that team. If you turn from Team Adam to Team Jesus, you get righteousness, redemption, justification, eternal life. And as part of playing for Team Jesus, the church father, John Chrysostom, he says this. This is so good. He says, in fact, neither death nor the devil himself can do anything to harm us. <laughs> Immortality is waiting for us. Yep. And after being chastened for a little while, we shall enjoy the blessings to come without fear. This present life, listen to this, listen to this church. This present life is a kind of school where we are under instruction by means of disease, suffering, temptations, and poverty, as well as other apparent evils in order to make us fit to receive the blessings of the world to come. Welcome to school, Harvest Decatur. COVID-19 is your teacher. It's teaching us. It's preparing us for eternity. It's helping us to long for eternity. Boy, is it right now. Eternal life. That's what grace gives us. That's what grace provides for us. That's what Jesus supplies us. Grace superabounding. Thank you, Lord. Let me close with this. And then we can pray. And I want to close our service today in prayer. Don Miller told me the other day that he likes it when I use diagrams when I preach. So this is probably the engineer in him. So for all of you engineers out there, I'm going to close with a diagram. I hope you appreciate this. This actually comes from a book entitled Romans 1 to 7 for you. Uh, the church father, Tertullian, said that the Lord was crucified between two thieves. So this great doctrine of justification by faith, by grace through faith, he said that that doctrine is continually crucified between two heresies. One heresy is the heresy of legalism. We've talked about that already. And then there's the other heresy, the heresy of liberalism. Let's talk about those two heresies and how they differ from the gospel of grace. Legalism says that God is holy and I've got to earn his grace. Liberalism says that God is loving and gracious, so there's no need for punishment to protect God's holiness. The gospel of grace says that God is holy and loving. Legalism says that we've got to earn our righteousness. Liberalism says you don't need perfect righteousness. Just embrace yourself the way that you are. The gospel of grace says we receive God's perfect righteousness in Christ. Legalism says matter is bad and we're all fallen. Reject physical pleasure. Liberalism says matter is good and we, we aren't fallen. Satisfy your physical appetites. The gospel of grace says matter is good, yet we are fallen. Physical enjoyment is good, but live wisely. Legalism says lean into your guilt and work it off. Liberalism says go away from your guilt. Convince yourself you're okay. The gospel of grace says rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's the solution for your guilt. Legalism says self-reliance. Liberalism says self-gratification. Gospel of grace says Christ's reliance leads to real, lasting satisfaction. 
Legalism, legalism says do good works for salvation. Liberalism says forget about salvation. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. The gospel, the gospel of grace says faith in Christ for eternal salvation. Now to all this, you might say, that's great, the gospel of grace, Pastor Tony, but what about sin? What about sin? I mean, if we focus so much on grace and the, the truth that our sin is paid for, won't this mean that we don't take sin seriously? Or, let me ask it this way, Pastor Tony. Should we continue sinning so that grace may abound, even superabound? Should we do that? that? That's an excellent question. In fact, Paul deals with that in Romans 6. And we're going we're gonna to talk all about it. Romans 6. Shall we continue sinning so that grace might abound? We're going to do it next week. So come back for more. Romans chapter 6. It's going to be fantastic. Let me encourage you right now as I pray. Let's just bow our heads in prayer and thank the Lord for what he's done for us. Can we do that? Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for saving us from our sins. Thank you for the gospel of grace. Thank you for God's righteousness at Christ's expense. It's too good for us, Lord. We don't deserve it. So God, as we close this time of worship, would you fill our hearts full of joy and thankfulness and gratitude for your good gift of grace? God, do that in each of our hearts right now, I pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Wherever you are right now, we're not going to close in a final song. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to just huddle up. If you're all alone, then just take this time to pray five, ten minutes. Just ask the Lord um, for help to stay even uh, joyful and focused on God's grace. And you might even do this just in a spirit of thankfulness. Thank the Lord for all the good work that he's done in your life. And thank you for the grace that he's offered to you. If you're in a group, let me just encourage you to gather in groups right now, wherever you are, parents with your kids, whoever's in your home watching this. And let's close in a time of prayer, five or ten minutes, expressing our thankfulness to the Lord. And then we'll be dismissed. Your love, Harvest Decatur.